Um, want to talk about something at this time that I'm definitely not qualified to talk about. I'm going to talk about depression. I'm not trained medically in any way. I know how to put on a Band-Aid, but that's pretty well it. I'm not a trained counselor as far as the world standard or our nation standard for counseling would be. And so I really don't qualify to teach on depression. But I am going to anyway. I'm going to do it because over the years of ministry, we started in 73, in December of 73, and over the years we have my wife and I have sat and listened to hundreds of people who wanted to come and just pour out their life and ask for help. What should I do? And it wasn't because we're trained, as I said, but it was because the Lord had blessed us with a good marriage and a good family. And people saw that. And so they put their trust in us. And so out of this speaking because of experience, personal experience, rather than speaking from textbooks or lectures or university educations, I just simply want to talk to you about some things that I have seen when we are dealing with depressed people. I want to talk about some of the stuff I've heard them saying. I want to talk about some of their frustrations because the problem of depression is a serious one. It's a hurtful one. And it seems as though to the person in that depression, there's no light at the end of the tunnel of life. And so, as we listened over the years, it was hard for us to know how to deal with so much. And we asked the Lord many times to help us find answers for these people. Now, I had taken upon myself to be a, a daily reader, reader of the Bible. I set up a schedule. I stuck to it for many years, and I'm still on it. And you see, in the Bible, you start to learn things. You've already heard the problem. And then all of a sudden, one day, there's either direction towards an answer or the answer. And so instead of being guided by what's out there, and I don't want to be critical of out there, I just want to talk about what we've learned. I began to learn from the Word of God that first of all, there were many people in scriptures that it looks like if they had lived today, they would have been diagnosed with depression. And so it isn't new for us to believe that I've got something unusual if I'm dealing with depression. It was common a way back. I have to think that Job went into states of depression from what I read in the book of Job. And, and he, was a, he was apparently at least in Abraham's time, if not before Abraham. 
And so all the way up through, you start to realize that it was something that followed man like a, a black cloud, a, a despondency that was always just ready with a knife to take your life or to rob you of your joy or whatever. You know, Solomon the king who took over from David, here's the king of Israel, wealthier than any other king, wiser than any other king of his time, married to more women than any other king of his time. I'm not saying that was a plus, but he was. Queen of Sheba, one of the neighboring countries, came to sit and listen to his wisdom. And it's, it mentions other kings, and it said Solomon was wiser than they were. His storehouse of riches, gold by the ton, not the ounce, but tons. They bring him shiploads of animals for, I assume, as zoos from nation other than his own, bring him tree, fancy wood, and all the stuff he desired. He had everything that you could possibly imagine. If he lived today, he would have had a mansion with three swimming pools, a katsuzi, a hot tub, five Mercedes Benz, and other cars sitting in the driveway. He would have had all that stuff, you see. But back then, in the book of Ecclesiastes, this is what he's writing about. He's writing about the futility of life because he depended on wealth. He depended on wisdom of the world. He depended on lots of company, including many wives. He depended on being known as great. And all this stuff failed him. And listen to what he says in Ecclesiastes 2, verse 17. Listen to this man. So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chastening after the wind. Now, if you want to read the whole book of Ecclesiastes, just a few chapters, there's constantly frustration Everything is going on in that book that says, I'm a failure, I'm unhappy. Things have not stocked up to what they're supposed to be. I would say this man was in deep depression. In his quest for wealth and to be well-known, to have people talk about him. He suddenly stuck his head up above all the things he tried, and he said, it doesn't work. I'm empty in here. I'm undone. From this, I learn, as I listen to people over the years sharing, some of them are wealthy, some are very wealthy, and they're in deep depression. Some have good jobs, they're in depression. 
Some have a good wife or a good husband. They're good kids, but they're in depression. And I had to come to a conclusion about what basically, from my estimation, not a, a worldly professional information base, but just my own base of what I've heard, what I've seen, what I've listened to. And that is that most of us in a Greek-oriented culture that says, you are valuable based on what you've accomplished. You have value based on where you're, how much education you have. You have value based on how tall you are, good-looking you are, how good a job you have. And that Greek-based culture, which the Olympics comes out of, if you win, you get a gold medal. If you suck and you get silver, which is worth a lot less. Your value is only as much as that gold medal is, unless you're fortunate enough to go commercial or professional Maybe somebody will sponsor you with a lot of money. But then please tell me why is there still in many of these people so much unhappiness? And so I started to watch for stuff in the scriptures. We can't talk about depression without talking about Nebuchadnezzar. He was a king in Babylon. The tribes of Judah and Benjamin had been taken captive, and they're in Babylon. They're going to be there for a total of 70 years, Jeremiah had said before they ever went there. And Nebuchadnezzar was a king. And one day, as he was looking out over a city of Babylon, which he had pretty well built, and Babylon at that time was known around the world, if it's possible to have, to have news around the world, of the, of the walls he had built, the, the vineyards he'd built, the, the gardens he'd built. He had walls with vines hanging over them. It was one of the seven man-made wonders of the world. And he stood one day and looked out over there. And he said some things he shouldn't have said. But before that happened, God sent a warning to him. He had a dream of this huge tree, and it covered the whole earth, representing his kingdom. The leaves and the branches were so full, the birds of the air and the animals were under it, and everything under that was under his domain, which represented the known world at that time. He didn't know what the dream meant. Daniel was able to interpret it for him. And Daniel was telling him, God did this for you. You didn't do it. God gave you the ability. God gave you the breath. God gave you the knowledge. Everything that happened to build this beautiful city, God did it for you, the God I serve. Now, I'm paraphrasing very loosely. But you see, a year later, Nebuchadnezzar hadn't paid any attention to his dream and the interpretation, apparently. He's standing and looking out over, and he said, haven't I built a beautiful city? All this work of my hands. 
and a voice came out of heaven and said, that's it, Buster. Your pride has to be broken, and I'm going to do it. It's going to be seven years in deep depression. Daniel had prophesied seven years. You'll be in depression for seven years. It'll be so bad, you'll be living like an animal. You'll go out in the field. No one can contain you. You'll grow fingernails that like claws like an animal. You'll eat grass like an animal. To keep warm, you'll grow hair because you're there for seven years. And he was. At the end of seven years, the Lord came back and his senses returned to him. And you need to read that fourth chapter of Daniel to get what I'm saying. But Nebuchadnezzar said, I learned my lesson. There, listen to what he says. There is a God, and he will deal with pride. He will deal with pride. Now his son, Belshazzar, in the next chapter, didn't learn from his father. And he's reveling in his pride, in his wealth. And one night the Lord wrote on the wall. He couldn't read it, nobody could read it, but Daniel could read it. It says, tonight you are found wanting. Tonight the kingdom will be taken from you and given to the Persians. That, because Belshazzar didn't learn from his father, he didn't get a second warning. Nebuchadnezzar before him had got a warning, and God waited a year for him to deal with that pride, but he didn't deal with him. Belshazzar should have learned from that. He saw his father out there in a mental state. He saw the resurrection of his dad. He heard his testimony, but he didn't learn from it. He didn't get a second warning. That night that Daniel said, your time is up, the Persian Empire broke in, Belshazzar lost his life, was taken, and the nation of Babylonia was turned over to the Persians. It was God's will, because it was out of the Persian Empire that God raised up Osiris who Isaiah had prophesied by name 150 years prior that there'd be a man named Cyrus who would bring about release for the children of Israel and send them back home. You know, there was a friend of ours. He had a chestnut tree. And you couldn't figure out why that chestnut tree, it was on the border between him and his neighbor, Nothing would grow. He couldn't get any plants to grow under that. You know, hostas like shade. He couldn't get them to grow. His neighbor, the stuff that they had there, died. And they did some research. And they found out that a chestnut tree, the roots give off a poison. They bleed out a poison, and it kills everything around there. Nebuchadnezzar was like that. You see, in that pride, there was a poison that started to affect his whole being. There was a poison that was in his mind. And you see, the mind, if it's poisoned, affects the physical. You might say, well, my doctor said 
It was an imbalance in my system. Yes, what causes that imbalance? The turmoil of the mind, the poisons in your mind from that pride. And you see, there's a lot of things that flow out of that pride. There's a self-centeredness, a me first. As a matter of fact, one of the things my wife and I have seen very clearly, the deeper a person is in depression, the more they talk about I, me, mine, and what they did to me. Help me, 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 mine. Over and over, they're so focused on self. The rest of the world is just an enemy to them. They're focused on self, and they're not only crying out for help, but they're angry that it's not working, or crying out is not working. Jonah was a candidate for that depression. I don't know if he was, but he, after he spoke to Nineveh, Nineveh repented. He went up in the hill to watch for God's judgment on Nineveh, but it didn't come because they repented. And Jonah started to complain, oh me, oh my, I'm hot. It's the, the vine you put up to persuade me is gone, the worm ate it, and, and I'm a miserable. Me, my Lord, where are you? And God said, you don't even care about those 120,000 people plus animals that were in that. You don't care about them. You only care about yourself. He should have been rejoicing that judgment didn't come against Nineveh, but he wasn't. He was only concerned about himself. Am I, am I speaking to anyone watching this about your self-centeredness, about the me-first attitude? People should be catering to me attitude. If I am, you need to start understanding we were not created by God to live in a self-centered, selfish, me-first, prideful attitude that I'm important, you should be catering to me attitude. One of the men that is teaching in one of our seminars, Dr. Bruce Thompson, his name is, when he's trying to explain to us that God didn't make us to be selfish, self-centered people, he didn't make us to be introverted, he didn't make us to be seeking attention from people, he didn't make us that way. And he used the illustration, he says, if I had a nail stuck under the, my podium here, he says, and I'm afraid I might rip my suit on it, I need to drive that nail in. I look around, there's nothing, so I take my watch off, and I decide to drive that nail in with my watch. He said, what do you think will happen? And most people will say, you're going to spoil the watch. Or you see, we were not created by God to be able to handle a self-centered, prideful, me-first attitude. We weren't. And so the poison from what we were creating within ourselves, it starts to affect us physically because it's affecting our soul. It's a poison of the soul. And somewhere along the line, we need to do what Jesus started to teach us to do. This is what Jesus taught us to do. Forget about yourself. Pay attention to others and their needs. Seek first the kingdom of God, which is the first commandment. And then the second commandment, be more concerned about other people than you are yourself. People that are servants. I have never met someone who serves, who is not happy, and who is in depression. 
because they don't focus on self. They're not focused on what people should be doing for me and what people shouldn't have done to me, which leads to unforgiveness, of course. They, they shouldn't have done that. I, I don't deserve to be treated that way. Listen, Romans 6 tells you how you should be treated. The wages of sin is death. That means that all of us, including me, should be in hell burning because I have sinned. I thank God I've been forgiven because I've asked for forgiveness. I ask to be forgiven for hurting my king, my Lord and my God, for bruising his heart with my axe, and he's forgiven me. You can be too. But it's time you start to realize I can come out of depression by stepping across that line and stop fussing over me, stop demanding my rights, stop demanding people bow to me or serve me, stop demanding. Because the Lord said, if you are willing to serve, this is scriptural, if you are willing to serve others and focus on serving, being a servant, because that's what the word minister means, serving, then the Lord said, I will put on my apron and I will come and I will serve you. That's my Jesus. He came to serve in death, but also in healing and restoration. He refused to let tension come to him. He would do anything he can to keep attention off himself, as did the apostles. Look in the book of John. John refuses to use the word I in his epistle. He refused to. The other disciple, the one that Jesus loved, but he didn't refer to himself. Matthew's the same. He doesn't refer to himself, these two apostles. Now, John does in Revelation refer to it, but he's saying, I saw the Lord. And his conversation is not about him and his trial and his, and his hardship on the Isle of Patmos where he was a prisoner. His focus was on Jesus and what he was saying. So all this stuff we have to realize, we have to realize is killing us. Our country is, is marked across this land with thousands of people on medication for, for depression. Why don't we realize that our lifestyle, our attitude towards other people and towards God, our lifestyle is costing us our mental health and our physical health. God didn't create us to be served. Yes, we need to be served, but as I make a decision to be a servant, Jesus said, you will be served. Your needs will be met. That's part of my promise to you. So why is depressing so hard? So many Christians are in depression. So many Christians are Wondering, where's the promise? Where's the joy? Where's the happiness? I've sat and listened to hundreds of Christians moaning and groaning because I am not being treated right. Nobody, I have no friends. Nobody cares for me. Nobody meets my needs. Woe is me. I'm just going to go out in the garden and eat worms. That's a song we sang when we were kids, remember? 
Nobody loves me. Everybody hates me. I'm going out in the garden to eat worms. Please don't invite me to their church to do a solo, okay? And these are Christians I'm talking about. Totally missed the message of Jesus. The cross is where I say to the Lord, I no longer live for myself. I die to everything in my old carnal nature that wants attention, wants to be served, wants people to fall over with me and befriend me and feel sorry for me. I die to all that. That's my cross. Unless we're willing to die, nothing's going to happen. Jesus talked about a kernel of corn. Nothing's going to happen. A kernel of corn, if it falls into the ground and doesn't die, just stays there. And I can tell you, my farming experience, it'll eventually rot. But the, the kernel of corn that gives up his life into a stalk that might only be this high when I pull it up and look at it. And there in the root, I actually did this years ago, there in the root was one shell all that was left like a plastic shell. Everything inside the shell was gone because it was taken to start that plant, to produce the roots to start that plant, which that would grow into a stalk with two or three cobs of corn on it. And those cobs of corn, they can easily have three to four hundred kernels on each cot. If I'm willing to die, then I'm to all the attention I've wanted, I die to all the fuss that I want people to make. I have to die to that. Lord, no more of that. I die to that. You, Lord God, are my Father. You will give me the strength to know and the wisdom to know who to serve, how to serve, the strength to serve because you called me to this. And in that serving, we are obeying the, obeying the Lord. That's called righteousness. And out of righteousness, there's peace. And out of peace, there's joy. And those are what the, we're missing as depressed people, the peace and the joy. But the thing that's missing is righteousness. We need to be people that walk in obedience to the Lord, learn how to, learn how to serve. And other things, there's other things that we need to realize are separating us from God. Just as a good wife in a marriage knows what she must do to keep the marriage with her husband pure and clean and precious. There's things she knows. She doesn't have a list of all the do's and don'ts. She just knows. Well, that's the way we can be with the Lord. In Hebrews 8 and 10, it says clearly, you don't have to have a set of rules anymore. They'll be written on your mind and on your heart. And you say, if we have... That understanding that I want my relationship with the Lord to be pure and holy, I will seek him as the first God of my life, the only God of my life, and I will ask him, Lord, who can I bless today? 
Father, we need you in this. We are helpless to be the people that you want us to be. We are helpless to be able to serve who we should be serving. We are helpless to know even who we should serve. And Lord, we can't serve everybody, but I know this. You can put the right people in our lives that need us to serve them and the right people in our lives to show us when there's pride in our life and to show us when we're being disobedient so we can walk in righteousness before you, Lord God. And we will know, Lord God, that we have put you first. Therefore, you are leading and guiding us. I thank you, Father, in the name of Jesus, my Lord. Amen. Amen, Lord.